Part two, chapter ten of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part two, chapter ten. The beginning of the end. What was my connection with John Brown, and what I knew of his scheme for the capture of Harper's Ferry, I may now proceed to state. From the time of my visit to him in Springfield, Mass., in 1847, our relations were friendly and confidential. I never passed through Springfield without calling on him, and he never came to Rochester without calling on me. He often stopped overnight with me, when we talked over the feasibility of his plan for destroying the value of slave property, and the motive for holding slaves in the border states. That plan, as already intimated elsewhere, was to take twenty or twenty-five discreet and trustworthy men into the mountains of Virginia and Maryland, and station them in squads of five, about five miles apart, on a line of twenty-five miles, each squad to cooperate with all and all with each. They were to have selected for them secure and comfortable retreats in the fastnesses of the mountains, where they could easily defend themselves in case of attack. They were to subsist upon the country roundabout. They were to be well armed, but were to avoid battle or violence, unless compelled by pursuit or in self-defense. In that case, they were to make it as costly as possible to the assailing party, whether that party should be soldiers or citizens. He further proposed to have a number of stations from the line of Pennsylvania to the Canada border, where such slaves as he might, through his men, induced to run away, should be supplied with food and shelter, and be forwarded from one station to another, till they should reach a place of safety, either in Canada or the northern states. He proposed to add to his force in the mountains any courageous and intelligent fugitives who might be willing to remain, and endure the hardships and brave the dangers of this mountain life. These, he thought, if properly selected, could, on account of their knowledge of the surrounding country, be made valuable auxiliaries. The work of going into the valley of Virginia and persuading the slaves to flee to the mountains was to be committed to the most courageous and judicious man connected with each squad. Hating slavery as I did, and making its abolition the object of my life, I was ready to welcome any new mode of attack upon the slave system which gave any promise of success. I readily saw that this plan could be made very effective in rendering slave property in Maryland and Virginia valueless by rendering it insecure. Men do not like to buy runaway horses, or to invest their money in a species of property likely to take legs and walk off with itself. In the worst case, too, if the plan should fail, and John Brown should be driven from the mountains, a new fact would be developed by which the nation would be kept awake to the existence of slavery. Hence I assented to this, John Brown's scheme or plan for running off slaves. To set this plan in operation, money and men, arms and munition, food and clothing were needed, and these, from the nature of the enterprise, were not easily obtained, and nothing was immediately done. Captain Brown, too, notwithstanding his rigid economy, was poor, and was unable to arm and equip men for the dangerous life he had mapped out. So the work lingered till after the Kansas trouble was over, and freedom in that territory was an accomplished fact. This left him with arms and men, for the men who had been with him in Kansas believed in him, and would follow him in any humane, though dangerous, enterprise he might undertake. After the close of his Kansas work, 
Captain Brown came to my house in Rochester, and said he desired to stop with me several weeks. But, he added, I will not stay unless you will allow me to pay board. Knowing that he was no trifler and meant all he said, and desirous of retaining him under my roof, I charged three dollars a week. While here, he spent most of his time in correspondence. He wrote often to George L. Stearns of Boston, Jarrett Smith of Peterborough, New York, and many others, and received many letters in return. When he was not writing letters, he was writing and revising a constitution which he meant to put in operation by means of the men who should go with him into the mountains. He said that, to avoid anarchy and confusion, there should be a regularly constituted government, which each man who came with him should be sworn to honor and support. I have a copy of this constitution in Captain Brown's own handwriting, as prepared by himself at my house. He called his friends from Chatham, Canada, to come together, that he might lay his constitution before them for their approval and adoption. His whole time and thought were given to this subject. It was the first thing in the morning and the last thing at night, till I confess it began to be something of a bore to me. Once in a while he would say he could, with a few resolute men, capture Harper's Ferry, and supply himself with arms belonging to the government at that place. But he never announced his intention to do so. It was, however, very evidently passing in his mind as a thing he might do. I paid but little attention to such remarks, though I never doubted that he thought just what he said. Soon after his coming to me, he asked me to get for him two smoothly planed boards upon which he could illustrate, with a pair of dividers, by a drawing, the plan of fortification which he meant to adopt in the mountains. These forts were to be so arranged as to connect with one the other by secret passages, so that if one was carried another could easily be fallen back upon, and be the means of dealing death to the enemy at the very moment when he might think himself victorious. I was less interested in these drawings than my children were, but they showed that the old man had an eye to the means as well as to the end, and was giving his best thought to the work he was about to take in hand. It was his intention to begin this work in fifty-eight instead of fifty-nine. Why he did not will appear from the following circumstances. While in Kansas he made the acquaintance of one Colonel Forbes, an Englishman, who had figured somewhat in revolutionary movements in Europe and, as it turned out, had become an adventurer, a soldier of fortune in this country. This Forbes professed to be an expert in military matters, and easily fastened upon John Brown, and, becoming master of his scheme of liberation, professed great interest in it, and offered his services to him in the preparation of his men for the work before them. After remaining with Brown a short time, he came to me in Rochester with a letter from him, asking me to receive and assist him. I was not favorably impressed with Colonel Forbes at first, but I conquered my prejudice, took him to a hotel, and paid his board while he remained. Just before leaving, he spoke of his family in Europe as in destitute circumstances, and of his desire to send them some money. I gave him a little, I forget how much, and through Miss Assing, a German lady, deeply interested in the John Brown scheme, he was introduced to several of my German friends in New York but he soon wore them out by his endless begging, and when he could make no more money by professing to advance the John Brown project, he threatened to expose it, and all connected with it. I think I was the first to be informed of his tactics, and I promptly communicated them to Captain Brown. 
Through my friend Miss Assing, I found that Forbes had told of Brown's designs to Horace Greeley and to the government officials at Washington, of which I informed Captain Brown, and this led to the postponement of the enterprise another year. It was hoped that by this delay the story of Forbes would be discredited, and this calculation was correct, for nobody believed the scoundrel, though in this he told the truth. While at my house, John Brown made the acquaintance of a colored man who called himself by different names, sometimes Emperor, at other times Shields Green. He was a fugitive slave who had made his escape from Charleston, South Carolina, a state from which a slave found it no easy matter to run away. But Shields Green was not one to shrink from hardships or dangers. He was a man of few words, and his speech was singularly broken but his courage and self-respect made him quite a dignified character. John Brown saw at once what stuff Green was made of, and confided to him his plans and purposes. Green easily believed in Brown, and promised to go with him whenever he should be ready to move. About three weeks before the raid on Harper's Ferry, John Brown wrote to me, informing me that a beginning in his work should soon be made, and that before going forward he wanted to see me, and appointed an old stone quarry near Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, as our place of meeting. Mr. Kagi, his secretary, would be there, and they wished me to bring any money I could command, and Shields Green along with me. In the same letter he said that his mining tools and stores were then at Chambersburg, and that he would be there to remove them. I obeyed the old man's summons. Taking Shields, we passed through New York City, where we called upon Reverend James Gloucester and his wife, and told them where and for what we were going, and that our friend needed money. Mrs. Gloucester gave me ten dollars, and asked me to hand the same to John Brown with her best wishes. When I reached Chambersburg, a good deal of surprise was expressed, for I was instantly recognized, that I should come there unannounced, and I was pressed to make a speech to them, with which invitation I readily complied. Meanwhile, I called upon Mr. Henry Watson, a simple-minded and warm-hearted man, to whom Captain Brown had imparted the secret of my visit, to show me the road to the appointed rendezvous. Watson was very busy in his barber's shop, but he dropped all and put me on the right track. I approached the old quarry very cautiously, for John Brown was generally well-armed and regarded strangers with suspicion. He was then under the ban of the government, and heavy rewards were offered for his arrest, for offences said to have been committed in Kansas. He was passing under the name of John Smith. As I came near, he regarded me rather suspiciously, but soon recognized me and received me cordially. He had in his hand, when I met him, a fishing tackle, with which he had apparently been fishing in a stream hard by. But I saw no fish, and did not suppose that he cared much for his fisherman's luck. The fishing was simply a disguise, and was certainly a good one. He looked every way like a man of the neighborhood, and as much at home as any of the farmers around there. His hat was old and storm-beaten, and his clothes was about the color of the stone quarry itself, his then present dwelling-place. His face wore an anxious expression, and he was much worn by thought and exposure. I felt that I was on a dangerous mission, and was as little desirous of discovery as himself, though no reward had been offered for me. We, Mr. Kagi, Captain Brown, Shields Green, and myself, sat down among the rocks and talked over the enterprise which was about to be undertaken. 
the taking of harper's ferry of which captain brown had merely hinted before was now declared as his settled purpose and he wanted to know what i thought of it i at once opposed the measure with all the arguments at my command to me such a measure would be fatal to running off slaves as was the original plan and fatal to all engaged in doing so it would be an attack upon the federal government and would array the whole country against us captain brown did most of the talking on the other side of the question he did not at all object to rousing the nation it seemed to him that something startling was just what the nation needed he had completely renounced his old plan and thought that the capture of harper's ferry would serve as notice to the slaves that their friends had come and as a trumpet to rally them to his standard he described the place as to its means of defense and how impossible it would be to dislodge him if once in possession of course i was no match for him in such matters but i told him and these were my words that all his arguments and all his descriptions of the place convinced me that he was going into a perfect steel trap and that once in he would never get out alive that he would be surrounded at once and escape would be impossible he was not to be shaken by anything i could say but treated my views respectfully replying that even if surrounded he would find means for cutting his way out but that would not be forced upon him he should at the start have a number of the best citizens of the neighborhood as his prisoners and that holding them as hostages he should be able if worse came to worse to dictate terms of egress from the town i looked at him with some astonishment that he could rest upon a reed so weak and broken and told him that virginia would blow him and his hostages sky-high rather than he should hold harper's ferry an hour our talk was long and earnest we spent the most of saturday and a part of sunday in this debate brown for harper's ferry and i against it he for striking a blow which should instantly rouse the country and i for the policy of gradually and unaccountably drawing off the slaves to the mountains as at first suggested and proposed by him when i found that he had fully made up his mind and could not be dissuaded i turned to shields green and told him he heard what captain brown had said his old plan was changed and that i should return home and if he wished to go with me he could do so captain brown urged us both to go with him but i could not do so and could but feel that he was about to rivet the fetters more firmly than ever on the limbs of the enslaved in parting he put his arms around me in a manner more than friendly and said come with me douglas i will defend you with my life i want you for a special purpose when i strike the bees will begin to swarm and i shall want you to help hive them but my discretion or my cowardice made me proof against the dear old man's eloquence perhaps it was something of both which determined my course when about to leave i asked green what he had decided to do and was surprised by his coolly saying in his broken way i believe i'll go with the old man here we separated they to go to harper's ferry i to rochester there has been some difference of opinion as to the propriety of my course in thus leaving my friend some have thought that i ought to have gone with him i have no reproaches for myself at this point and since i have been assailed only by colored men who kept even farther from this brave and heroic man than i did i shall not trouble myself much about their criticisms they compliment me in assuming that i should perform greater deeds than themselves such then was my connection with john brown and it may be asked if this is all why i should have objected to being sent to virginia to be tried for the offence charged 
the explanation is not difficult i knew that if my enemies could not prove me guilty of the offence of being with john brown they could prove that i was frederick douglass they could prove that i was in correspondence and conspiracy with brown against slavery they could prove that i brought shields green one of the bravest of his soldiers all the way from rochester to him at chambersburg they could prove that i brought money to aid him and in what was then the state of the public mind i could not hope to make a jury of virginia believe i did not go the whole length he went or that i was not one of his supporters and i knew that all virginia once i was in her clutches would say let him be hanged before i had left canada for england jeremiah anderson one of brown's men who was present and took part in the raid but escaped by the mountains joined me and he told me that he and shields green were sent out on special duty as soon as the capture of the arsenal etc was effected their business was to bring in the slaves from the surrounding country and hence they were on the outside when brown was surrounded i said to him why then did not shields come with you well he said i told him to come that we could do nothing more but he simply said he must go down to de old man anderson further told me that captain brown was careful to keep his plans from his men and that there was much opposition among them when they found what were the precise movements determined upon but they were an oath-bound company and like good soldiers were agreed to follow their captain wherever he might lead on the twelfth of november eighteen fifty nine i took passage from quebec on board the steamer scotia captain thompson of the allen line my going to england was not at first suggested by my connection with john brown but the fact that i was now in danger of arrest on the ground of complicity with him made what i had intended a pleasure a necessity for though in canada and under british law it was not impossible that i might be kidnapped and taken to virginia england had given me shelter and protection when the slave hounds were on my track fourteen years before and her gates were still open to me now that i was pursued in the name of virginia justice i could but feel that i was going into exile perhaps for life slavery seemed to be at the very top of its power the national government with all its powers and appliances was in its hands and it bade fair to wield them for many years to come nobody could then see that in the short space of four years this power would be broken and the slave system destroyed so i started on my voyage with feelings far from cheerful no one who has not himself been compelled to leave his home and country and go into permanent banishment can well imagine the state of mind and heart which such a condition brings the voyage out was by the north passage and at this season as usual it was cold dark and stormy before quitting the coast of labrador we had four degrees below zero although i had crossed the atlantic twice before i had not experienced such unfriendly weather as during the most of this voyage our great ship was dashed about upon the surface of the sea as though she had been the smallest dugout it seemed to tax all the seamanship of our captain to keep her in manageable condition but after battling with the waves on an angry ocean during fourteen long days i gratefully found myself upon the soil of great britain beyond the reach of buchanan's power and virginia's prisons upon reaching liverpool i learned that england was nearly as much alive to what had happened at harper's ferry as was the united states and i was immediately called upon in different parts of the country to speak on the subject of slavery 
and especially to give some account of the men who had thus flung away their lives in a desperate attempt to free the slaves my own relation to the affair was a subject of much interest as was the fact of my presence there being in some sense to elude the demands of governor wise who having learned that i was not in michigan but was on a british steamer bound for england publicly declared that could he overtake that vessel he would take me from her deck at any cost while in england wishing to visit france i wrote to mr george m dallas the american minister at the british court to obtain a passport the attempt upon the life of napoleon the third about that time and the suspicion that the conspiracy against him had been hatched in england made the french government very strict in the enforcement of its passport system i might possibly have been permitted to visit that country without a certificate of my citizenship but wishing to leave nothing to chance i applied to the only competent authority but true to the traditions of the democratic party true to the slave-holding policy of his country true to the decision of the united states supreme court and true perhaps to the petty meanness of his own nature mr george m dallas the democratic american minister refused to grant me a passport on the ground that i was not a citizen of the united states i did not beg or remonstrate with this dignitary further but simply addressed a note to the french minister in london asking for a permit to visit france and that paper came without delay i mention this not to belittle the civilization of my native country but as a part of the story of my life i could have borne this denial with more serenity could i have foreseen what has since happened but under the circumstances it was a galling disappointment i had at this time been about six months out of the united states my time had been chiefly occupied in different parts of england and scotland in speaking on slavery and other subjects meeting and enjoying the while the society of many of the kind friends whose acquaintance i had made during my visit fourteen years before to those countries much of the excitement caused by the harper's ferry insurrection had subsided both at home and abroad and i should have now gratified a long-cherished desire to visit france and availed myself for that purpose of the permit so promptly and civilly given by the french minister had not news reached me from home of the death of my beloved daughter annie the light and life of my house deeply distressed by this bereavement and acting upon the impulse of the moment regardless of the peril i at once resolved to return home and took the first outgoing steamer for portland maine after a rough passage of seventeen days i reached home by way of canada and remained in my house nearly a month before the knowledge got abroad that i was again in this country great changes had now taken place in the public mind touching the john brown raid virginia had satisfied her thirst for blood she had executed all the raiders who had fallen into her hands she had not given captain brown the benefit of a reasonable doubt but hurried him to the scaffold in panic-stricken haste she had made herself ridiculous by her fright and despicable by her fury emerson's prediction that brown's gallows would become like the cross was already being fulfilled the old hero in the trial hour had behaved so grandly that men regarded him not as a murderer but as a martyr all over the north men were singing the john brown song his body was in the dust but his soul was marching on his defeat was already assuming the form and pressure of victory and his death was giving new life and power to the principles of justice and liberty 
he had spoken great words in the face of death and the champions of slavery he had quailed before neither what he had lost by the sword he had more than gained by the truth had he wavered had he retreated or apologized the case had been different he did not even ask that the cup of death might pass from him to his own soul he was right and neither principalities nor powers life nor death things present nor things to come could shake his dauntless spirit or move him from his ground he may not have stooped on his way to the gallows to kiss a little colored child as it is reported he did but the act would have been in keeping with the tender heart as well as with the heroic spirit of the man those who looked for confession heard only the voice of rebuke and warning early after the insurrection at harper's ferry an investigating committee was appointed by congress and a dragnet was spread all over the country in the hope of inculpating many distinguished persons they had imprisoned thaddeus hyatt who denied their right to interrogate him and had called many witnesses before them as if the judicial power of the nation had been confided to their committee and not to the supreme court of the united states but captain brown implicated nobody upon his own head he invited all the bolts of slaveholding vengeance he said that he and he alone was responsible for all that had happened he had many friends but no instigators in all their efforts this committee signally failed and soon after my arrival home they gave up the search and asked to be discharged not having half fulfilled the duty for which they were appointed i have never been able to account satisfactorily for the sudden abandonment of this investigation on any other ground than that the men engaged in it expected soon to be in rebellion themselves and that not a rebellion for liberty like that of john brown but a rebellion for slavery and that they saw that by using their senatorial power in search of rebels they might be whetting a knife for their own throats at any rate the country was soon relieved of the congressional dragnet and was now engaged in the heat and turmoil of a presidential canvass a canvass which had no parallel involving as it did the question of peace or war the integrity or the dismemberment of the republic and i may add the maintenance or destruction of slavery in some of the southern states the people were already organizing and arming to be ready for an apprehended contest and with this work on their hands they had no time to spare to those they had wished to convict as instigators of the raid however desirous they may have been to do so under other circumstances for they had parted with none of their hate as showing their feeling toward me i may state that a colored man appeared about this time in knoxville tennessee and was beset by a furious crowd with knives and bludgeons because he was supposed to be frederick douglas but however perilous it would have been for me to have shown myself in any southern state there was no especial danger for me at the north though disappointed in my tour on the continent and called home by one of the saddest events that can afflict the domestic circle my presence here was fortunate since it enabled me to participate in the most important and memorable presidential canvass ever witnessed in the united states and to labor for the election of a man who in the order of events was destined to do a greater service to his country and to mankind than any man who had gone before him in the presidential office it is something to couple one's name with great occasions and it was a great thing to me to be permitted to bear some humble part in this the greatest that had thus far come to the american people 
It was a great thing to achieve American independence when we numbered three millions, but it was a greater thing to save this country from dismemberment and ruin when it numbered thirty millions. He alone, of all our presidents, was to have the opportunity to destroy slavery, and to lift into manhood millions of his countrymen hitherto held as chattels and numbered with the beasts of the field. The presidential canvas of 1860 was three-sided, and each side had its distinctive doctrine as to the question of slavery and slavery extension. We had three candidates in the field. Stephen A. Douglas was the standard-bearer of what may be called the Western faction of the old divided Democratic Party, and John C. Breckinridge was the standard-bearer of the Southern or slaveholding faction of that party. Abraham Lincoln represented the then young, growing, and united Republican Party. The lines between these parties and candidates were about as distinctly and clearly drawn as political lines are capable of being drawn. The name of Douglas stood for territorial sovereignty, or, in other words, for the right of the people of a territory to admit or exclude, to establish or abolish, slavery, as to them might seem best. The doctrine of Breckinridge was that slaveholders were entitled to carry their slaves into any territory of the United States, and to hold them there, with or without the consent of the people of the territory. That the Constitution of its own force carried slavery into any territory open for settlement in the United States, and protected it there. To both these parties, factions, and doctrines, Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party stood opposed. They held that the federal government had the right and the power to exclude slavery from the territories of the United States, and that that right and power ought to be exercised to the extent of confining slavery inside the slave states, with a view to its ultimate extinction. The position of Mr. Douglas gave him a splendid pretext for the display of a species of oratory of which he was a distinguished master. He alone of the three candidates took the stump as the preacher of popular sovereignty, called in derision at the time, squatter sovereignty. This doctrine, if not the times, gave him a chance to play fast and loose, blow hot and cold, as occasion might require. In the South and among slaveholders, he could say, my great principle of popular sovereignty does not and was not intended by me to prevent the extension of slavery. On the contrary, it gives you the right to take your slaves into the territories and secure legislation legalizing slavery. It denies to the federal government all right of interference against you, and hence is eminently favorable to your interests. When among people known to be indifferent, he could say, I do not care whether slavery is voted up or down in the territory. But when addressing the known opponents of the extension of slavery, he could say that the people of the territories were in no danger of having slavery forced upon them, since they could keep it out by adverse legislation. Had he made these representations before railroads, electric wires, phonography, and newspapers had become the powerful auxiliaries they have done, Mr. Douglas might have gained many votes but they were of little avail now. The South was too sagacious to leave slavery to the chance of defeat in a fair vote by the people of a territory. Of all property, none could less afford to take such a risk, for no property can require more strongly favoring conditions for its existence. Not only the intelligence of the slave, but the instincts of humanity, must be barred by positive law, 
hence breckinridge and his friends erected the flinty walls of the constitution and the supreme court for the protection of slavery at the outset against both douglas and breckinridge abraham lincoln proposed his grand historic doctrine of the power and duty of the national government to prevent the spread and perpetuity of slavery into this contest i threw myself with firmer faith and more ardent hope than ever before and what i could do by pen or voice was done with a will the most remarkable and memorable feature of this canvas was that it was prosecuted under the portentous shadow of a threat leading public men of the south had with the vehemence of fiery purpose given it out in advance that in case of their failure to elect their candidate mr john c breckinridge they would proceed to take the slaveholding states out of the union and that in no event whatever would they submit to the rule of abraham lincoln to many of the peace-loving friends of the union this was a fearful announcement and it doubtless cost the republican candidates many votes to many others however it was deemed a mere bravado sound and fury signifying nothing with a third class its effect was very different they were tired of the rule or ruin intimidation adopted by the south and felt then if never before that they had quailed before it too often and too long it came as an insult and a challenge in one and imperatively called upon them for independence self-assertion and resentment had southern men puzzled their brains to find the most effective means to array against slavery and slaveholding manners the solid opposition of the north they could not have hit upon an expedient better suited to that end than was this threat it was not only unfair but insolent and more like an address to cowardly slaves than one to independent free men it had in it the meanness of the horse-jockey who on entering a race proposes if beaten to run off with the stakes in all my speeches made during this canvass i did not fail to take advantage of this southern bluster and bullying as i have said this southern threat lost many votes but it gained more than would cover the lost it frightened the timid but stimulated the brave and the result was the triumphant election of abraham lincoln then came the question what will the south do about it will she eat her bold words and submit to the verdict of the people or proceed to the execution of the program she had marked out for herself prior to the election the inquiry was an anxious one and the blood of the north stood still waiting for the response it had not to wait long for the trumpet of war was soon sounded and the tramp of armed men was heard in that region during all the winter of eighteen sixty notes of preparation for a tremendous conflict came to us from that quarter on every wind still the warning was not taken few of the north could really believe that this insolent display of arms would end in anything more substantial than dust and smoke the shameful and shocking course of president buchanan and his cabinet toward this rising rebellion against the government which each and all of them had solemnly sworn to support defend and maintain the facts that the treasury was emptied that the army was scattered that our ships of war were sent out of the way that our forts and arsenals in the south were weakened and crippled purposely left an easy prey to the prospective insurgents that one after another the states were allowed to secede that these rebel measures were largely encouraged by the doctrine of mr buchanan that he found no power in the constitution to coerce a state are all matters of history and need only the briefest mention here to arrest this tide of secession and revolution which was sweeping over the south 
the southern papers which still had some dread of the consequences likely to ensue from the course marked out before the election proposed as a means for promoting conciliation and satisfaction that each northern state through her legislature or in convention assembled should repeal all laws passed for the injury of the constitutional rights of the south meaning thereby all laws passed for the protection of personal liberty that they should pass laws for the easy and prompt execution of the fugitive slave law that they should pass other laws imposing penalties on all malefactors who should hereafter assist or encourage the escape of fugitive slaves also laws declaring and protecting the right of slaveholders to travel and sojourn in northern states accompanied by their slaves also that they should instruct their representatives and senators in congress to repeal the law prohibiting the sale of slaves in the district of columbia and pass laws sufficient for the full protection of slave property in the territories of the union it may indeed be well regretted that there was a class of men in the north willing to patch up a peace with this rampant spirit of disunion by compliance with these offensive scandalous and humiliating terms and to do so without any guarantee that the south would then be pacified rather with the certainty learned by past experience that it would by no means promote this end i confess to a feeling allied to satisfaction at the prospect of a conflict between the north and the south standing outside the pale of american humanity denied citizenship unable to call the land of my birth my country and adjudged by the supreme court of the united states to have no rights which white men were bound to respect and longing for the end of the bondage of my people i was ready for any political upheaval which should bring about a change in the existing condition of things whether the war of words would or would not end in blows was for a time a matter of doubt and when it became certain that the south was wholly in earnest and meant at all hazards to execute its threats of disruption a visible change in the sentiment of the north was apparent the reaction from the glorious assertion of freedom and independence on the part of the north in the triumphant election of abraham lincoln was a painful and humiliating development of its weakness it seemed as if all that had been gained in the canvas was about to be surrendered to the vanquished and that the south though beaten at the polls was to be victorious and have everything its own way in the final result during all the intervening months from november to the ensuing march the drift of northern sentiment was towards compromise to smooth the way for this most of the northern legislatures repealed their personal liberty bills as they were supposed to embarrass the surrender of fugitive slaves to their claimants the feeling everywhere seemed to be that something must be done to convince the south that the election of mr lincoln meant no harm to slavery or the slave power and that the North was sound on the question of the right of the master to hold and hunt his slave as long as he pleased, and that even the right to hold slaves in the territories should be submitted to the Supreme Court, which would probably decide in favor of the most extravagant demands of the slave states. The Northern press took on a more conservative tone towards the slavery propagandists, and a corresponding tone of bitterness towards anti-slavery men and measures it came to be a no uncommon thing to hear men denouncing south carolina and massachusetts in the same breath and in the same measure of disapproval the old pro-slavery spirit which in eighteen thirty five mobbed anti-slavery prayer meetings and dragged william lloyd garrison through the streets of boston with a halter about his neck was revived 
from massachusetts to missouri anti-slavery meetings were ruthlessly assailed and broken up with others i was roughly handled in tremont temple boston by a mob headed by one of the wealthiest men of that city the talk was that the blood of some abolitionist must be shed to appease the wrath of the offended south and to restore peaceful relations between the two sections of the country a howling mob followed wendell phillips for three days whenever he appeared on the pavements of his native city because of his ability and prominence in the propagation of anti-slavery opinions while this humiliating reaction was going on at the north various devices to bring about peace and reconciliation were suggested and pressed at washington committees were appointed to listen to southern grievances and if possible devise means of redress for such as might be alleged some of these peace propositions would have been shocking to the last degree to the moral sense of the north had not fear for the safety of the union overwhelmed all moral conviction such men as william h seward charles francis adams henry b anthony joshua r giddings and others men whose courage had been equal to all other emergencies bent before this southern storm and were ready to purchase peace at any price those who had stimulated the courage of the north before the election and had shouted who's afraid were now shaking in their shoes with apprehension and dread one was for passing laws in the northern states for the better protection of slave hunters and for the greater efficiency of the fugitive slave bill another was for enacting laws to punish the invasion of the slave states and others were for so altering the constitution of the united states that the federal government should never abolish slavery while any one state should object to such a measure everything that could be demanded by insatiable pride and selfishness on the part of the slaveholding south or could be surrendered by abject fear and servility on the part of the north had able and eloquent advocates happily for the cause of human freedom and for the final unity of the american nation the south was mad and would listen to no concessions it would neither accept the terms offered nor offer others to be accepted it had made up its mind that under a given contingency it would secede from the union and thus dismember the republic that contingency had happened and it should execute its threat mr ierson of georgia expressed the ruling sentiment of his section when he told the northern peacemakers that if the people of the south were given a blank sheet of paper upon which to write their own terms on which they would remain in the union they would not stay they had come to hate everything which had the prefix free free soil free states free territories free schools free speech and freedom generally and they would have no more such prefixes this haughty and unreasonable and unreasoning attitude of the imperious south saved the slave and saved the nation had the south accepted our concessions and remained in the union the slave power would in all probability have continued to rule the north would have become utterly demoralized the hands on the dial plate of american civilization would have been reversed and the slave would have been dragging his hateful chains to-day wherever the american flag floats to the breeze those who may wish to see what depths of humility and self-abasement a noble people can be brought under the sentiment of fear will find no chapter of history more instructive than that which treats of the events in official circles in washington during the space between the months of november eighteen fifty nine and march eighteen sixty end of part two chapter ten